Open heart. And then we'll take it from there. Well, it's fabulous. This morning they caught us off guard because they had our eldest daughter introduce us, and it was completely unexpected. And so that was very tender because Nass uh, and her husband had planted a church in Perth, Australia. They got our four grandbabies there. And uh, so that was exceptionally tender. I was a little more prepared. In fact, Meryl leant over to me during the worship and said, you know, Dana wrote that song. So the one that you saw there uh, wrote the song, Let Me Be Found in Your Temple. So it was a kind of a nice little, little moment there. Oh, thanks. You know, I, I'll just kind of launch us out a little bit because um, it's been fabulous having a few days with the elders, with Stan and Heather this morning, this evening, and then seeing some of you just as friends. Um, I, I think during the, during the worship, what compelled me was the fact that when we started, September 1983, I was a school teacher at DHS. Meryl was still at university. She was 21. I was 24. I think I might have just turned 25. And I've often pondered on that. You know, we had no qualification uh, theologically. We had nothing really to add the body of Christ. But, but uh, there was something bubbling inside of us. There was just something that was percolating. We found Jesus incredibly captivating, as we still do all these years later. And it was Him seeding something in our hearts. You know, every generation has the architecture of what church needs to look like in their generation, in their chest. Every generation. I mean, you just think architecturally for a moment. The first 250 years, the church, um, the archaeologist says that the church only met in homes. Now, if that's the only picture you have, you said, you see, that's what we've got to do. We've just got to meet in homes. Well, the story's not finished. And then there was the whole uh, kind of Christendom and the growth of Christendom and the growth of cathedrals and all the beauty and the mystery and the wonder and the liturgy that was added to Christianity. And it was captivating and it was beautiful and it was for an appropriate time. And then we skedaddle all the way through the dome structures and the high ceiling structures into the shopping malls. The invisible church, which we were part of before, was the first church to my recollection in the 70s that had a warehouse. But each one of them tells you something. It tells you about divine assignment. It tells you about calling. It tells you about divine responsibility. And so when we started, really in a garden up near the university, it was with this understanding, God, you are raising us up at this time with something. And it was kind of cute to see these little kiddos jumping around in the front. But you know where that started? We had a 10-day water fast. Because our mandate and responsibility, at least at that stage, was to combat the whole evolution of apartheid. And one of the things we did, architecturally, we had plenty of fasting. Not just for the sake of it. Not just because it's what you do. It's because we felt an inner prophetic responsibility to do combat with the principalities and powers that were over this nation, as well as the systems and structures that were in place. One of the nights... And then I'll hand over to Meryl, and she can say hi and take us on a little bit. But one of the nights, we were at the Glenwood Hall, and we said, you know, we're a church for the nations. Everyone bring a flag. And it was the first time, to the best of our recollection, that we had 150 flags in the room. Zane, one of our super cool, crazy sculptors, had a long bamboo pole and a tiny little ANC flag at the top. <laughs> Only Zane. He never wore the same socks He's one of Doug's disciples. 
Yeah, yeah, that's true. Doug doesn't wear socks. In fact, Doug is the only one I've ever sent home because he wasn't appropriately dressed. He had a skirt on. I said, Doug, go home. Get yourself dressed. Hey, 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 Chris. Hey, Storff. Hey, no, hey. I said, Douglas, go home, get dressed, and when you're dressed, come back. I can say it because he's not here yet. He's going to be a bit later. But, but there's the architecture of what church needs to look like in your generation. That's why it's a tragedy when leadership gets older and older. We are still imposing an antiquitous architecture on you when actually we need some modern buildings, modern design, modern shapes, things that are burning inside of you at this point in time. And the architecture is shaped on calling. What has God called you to do? Because you will build a building, quote unquote, with that in mind. It's calling. It's also assignments. What are the specific things that you need to be doing? And does this system or structure allow you to do that? Does it make sense? Why did we meet in a tent for those years? It's because we were told to be a highly prophetically mobile people. Stretch your tent curtains wide. Lengthen your cords. Strengthen your stakes. You will stretch out to the left and to the right more of the children of the desolate woman than of her who has children. Because you see, God assigned us an ever-evolving architecture. So it's been fabulous for 38 years to watch the evolution of the Glenridge story. Because it started with a dream in our hearts, a clear sense of assignment, and God has been continuously unfolding that. We loved the 40 or so who started. I was not the obvious leader. It was only when we went to Dudley uh, up in Johannesburg in nine, September 1983 that he said to the then leaders, hey guys, just let Chris lead this thing, you know? And it was like, oh, 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 okay, you know? And so that was the fledgling early steps, a small group of people compelled by Jesus, stirring with an architecture inside of them of what church needs to look like in our age with the battles we will fight and uh, the incredible friendships that God knitted together, my love. I want to speak to all the reluctant leaders in the room, because that is my testimony, and that's my story. There was no ways that I ever thought that we would be, you know, the leaders of Glenridge. And I remember resisting that call for a long, many, many, many months, I said to Chris, we, I want to serve God, I want to be involved in church, but I do not want to lead. I, I don't want us to be leaders in the church. And uh, it was in a prayer meeting up in um, Bryanston in 83, whatever that was, and um, there was a prophetic word, and it was exactly me. And in that moment, all I did is I just said, okay, God, if this is you, you break down the walls. And in an absolute sovereign move of God, he broke down every wall. I, walk, I just sobbed. I just sobbed in that prayer meeting. And I walked out of that prayer meeting knowing that he had called Chris and I to lead Glenridge as it became. And I want to just say to you, I am so grateful to a God who doesn't just choose uh, the fire hydrant <laughs> and the little dripping tap or whatever you want to call me, but he doesn't choose much afraid. Yeah, I don't know if any of you know Hannah Hernard's um, book about hinds feet in high places, but that allegory, that story, honestly, is me, because I feel like I was much afraid, and I was married to 
Mr. Bold and courageous, and, and I, I would quake in my boots, but God, in His absolute grace, came into my heart, spoke to me at the age of 21, whatever it was, and said, no, no, I'm calling you. You, you can do this. And it has been the most incredibly privileged journey. I want to say every reluctant leader in this room, you serve a big God, a God who is able, a God who takes those that disqualify themselves like I did and I did for decades, and he can use you. And um, yeah, Glenridge honestly was a sovereign work of God. The funny thing is we, for the longest time, used to laugh hysterically at the thought that Chris and I were pastor and we used to joke about me being pastorina because we just thought that was the funniest thing, that we were pastor and pastorina. But because that's how it felt. We planted with a group of friends. Some of you are still here. And um, what a beautiful thing to do this in, with your heavenly Father, to open your hand and say, God, this is all I have. I don't actually have much, but can you do something with this? And the amazing thing is he totally did. And we, we are so grateful that this lampstand actually still burns today, and it burns strong. And we are just, we, we are just so grateful for a beautiful God who did, did this Glenridge story in, in such a wonderful way. Wonderful, my love. Should we just keep going, Stan? Yeah, yeah. We, we can. <laughs> We were too clueless to really adopt any marketing strategy. Um, we, we didn't know how to grow it. We didn't know how to develop it. And so in our simplistic little way, we said, Lord, give us some values. Give us some things that will be a grid through which we will measure everything. And God gave me four R's. He said, I want you to be real. And that was born out of Merrill, a conversation Meryl and I had in our car on the way to uh, the school hall. And she said, babe, I'll do this. As long as I can be real, I don't want any pretense. I don't want to be put in any position. I don't want people to look on me because of the role I play. And we realized that deep inside of us was this quest for absolute honesty and vulnerability. Thank you. That was what we wanted. We wanted to be real. So in the early days, if Meryl and I had a fight on the way to the meeting, I told everyone. See? Why? Because most of them had as well. And... Uh, because we were committed to being absolutely honest and vulnerable. And you know, there's a deep spiritual truth in there. You will, not, you will grow spiritually to the point of your vulnerability. If you're not vulnerable, you're stuck. If your life is together and you control the narrative of your life and you control the emotions and you control your highs and your lows, you will never grow spiritually because it's when we're out of control that God does the best work inside of us. And so we did. So one of Chris's sayings, because Chris actually thinks with his mouth. Literally, he really, really does. He thinks with his mouth. So often he just talks and things come out. And one of them was, the road to holiness is honesty and vulnerability. And I remember when he said it, I was like, wow. Like the road to holiness is honesty and vulnerability. And that's exactly what this real kind of component of what we wanted in the church was birthed out of. Like, you've got to be honest with each other, and you've got to be vulnerable. Vulnerable about sin, vulnerable about weakness, vulnerable, vulnerable about insecurity, whatever it is, and honest with one another. Thank you, my love. The second was relationships, and relationships are really, 
take it back to Jesus, because we really like going back to Jesus. It's not a modern or late modern or a postmodern understanding of relationships. It's a Jesus way. Jesus had one friend called John who humbly called himself his best buddy. Then he had the three, Peter, James, and John. Then he had the 12, then the 72. And there's just something profound in that simple little ripple effect. And so for us, the relational piece, dear friends, really is... Oh, there we go, my love. Thanks, Nick. I'm still disappointed you didn't take your shirt off today. I'm just just wanting to put it out there. I'm just putting it out there. (laughs) And so there is this deep grasp. And you know, part of relationships is that there are people who know what's knowable about you. If people don't know what's knowable, you can right shoulder, three pats on the back. You can knuckle, elbow, knee. You can do whatever you want, but there's the depth only defined by the invitation into your life. And not everyone the same. But there has to be someone who's, who knows what's known. Terry Fouché. Terry was our second elder here. Well, there at Glenwood. Terry is now pastoring a church in Pasadena, California. And we have walked together in the early days when we were elders together. We headbutted, like headbutted. Not nice little Christian. Oops, I disagree with you. I mean, we went toe to toe. And uh, it was that close for our relationship to be irreconcilable. But now all these years later, I met him in 1981 and his wife, Linda, in 1977. We will drive to a halfway point between Pasadena and Costa Mesa. We will have coffee. And Terry will say to me, Chris, how's your sex life? And I say, you know, Marilyn, I've been struggling a bit recently. She's a therapist. She comes home tired. The ministry is really sucking it out of me. Actually, but we're not making love that often at the moment. See? Someone needs to know what's knowable about you. There's no virtue in silence. Every one of us carries a silent scream. But it's no good if it's a silent scream. Someone's got to hear the scream. Otherwise, it preaches well, relationships. Now, I want to be part of a church that is, but it lives hard. When we earth it, when it's just on the ground stuff, that we all have highs and lows, we're all sexually broken, Started in the garden, Genesis 3. The sexual rhythms of Genesis 1 and 2 were gone. Genesis 3 revealed the brokenness between Adam and Eve. Authority and relationships and intimacy were turned topsy-turvy. So let's just accept that. Let's just be honest about it. It just makes for so much easier partnership in life. Be relational, be real. And the thirdly, we said we really wanted to be radical. Now, now, part of it was useful. Of course it was. You know, we wanted to change the world. Viva. But there's something deeper about a Jesus radicalism. It's about immediate obedience. When He speaks to us, we do it. Whatever it may be, and no matter how hard. We, we, we don't Listen, you will never win a fight with Jesus. Why expend so much energy and be spiritually exhausted? Because you will lose and He will win. It may be three years, look at the prodigal son, it may be three years, five years, seven years, but you will cycle back to this point where you bow a humble knee before the king of kings and you say the great words of, I surrender. And when we say those two most beautiful of words on on this side of life, God mobilizes us into stories beyond. Listen, I'm an Afrikaans kid. I grew up in a blue-collar family. My dad was a construction man. I was born in Fondabel Park. 
and my name is Christian Hendrik Philippus Wienand. Did I have any hope in life? There's hardly a day that goes by that I don't thank God. I write my address, and I live in Costa Mesa. I'm seven minutes from the beach. Here's some of the coolest surfing spots in Southern California. In a most beautiful house that Merrill has crafted for us. But we're only there because we had to say many times, I surrender. Without any promise that it would the future looked like, without any certainty. We planted a little church right now. There's about 100 kids, 120. The overwhelming number of people in the church, which we did not plan, is between the age of 18 and 32. There are five couples older than our daughter, us included. Who would have thought? Every day, Meryl and I said, Lord, why are these beautiful Californian kids coming to hang out with us. How on earth is that possible? I honestly tell them, I said, listen, there's some really cool, sexy pastors in Costa Mesa. Why don't you go to one of their churches? They've got lights, they've got smoke machines, they've got everything. We've got nothing. We've got an accent that they think is cool, and that's about it. <laughs> I know, you think, no one has ever said to me an Afrikaans accent is cool, but they do, so I still speak like this very much. So it's real, it's radical, it's relational, and then it is relevant, which the millennial word would be authentic. There would just be an authentic engagement around the big conversations. We marched for BLM. It was an amazing moment. Meryl and I, our daughter, our son-in-law, our son, and our grandson. Not because we believe in the organization, but we believe in the truth, the imago day truth that every man, woman, and child is born as an image bearer of the Most High God. And if our voice can be heard pleading that every man, woman, and child is an Im image bearer of the Most High, and we need to fight for their well-being, I will march with whomever, and I have marched with whomever. Do you want to jump in, my love? <laughs> no. <laughs> so those were the things that we started with. And then I said to the Lord, I, not just me, so when I say I, it's really not just me. It was always very collaborative. You know, it was never that Chris was the top of the pile, or Chris and Merrill. It was really an us. Nick and Kati will know, they were there from almost the beginning when Nick stopped chasing Kati all over Europe. That's another story for another time. I'm just saying, Nikki, I'm just saying, you, you, you was a phenomenal 800-meter runner, this guy beat the heck out of me. I was wasteful. He was DHS. Oh, I just got shy at every time. He just gave me. But I said, Lord, you know, I don't understand the church as a temple, a building. I'm not an architect. I'm not an engineer. I'm not a con construction man. I don't even understand the, 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 the whole idea of us being sheep, and he's the good shepherd. I really didn't understand this. I said, Lord, what is the metaphor that will make sense to me? How can I lead this community in a way that, that I understand? And, you know, God is always kind. He gives me little phrases. And he said, will you build a basics camp for me? In America, we'd say, would you build a boot camp? And, you know, it was amazing. That was all. And, and at that point in time, Richard Gere's movie, An Officer and a Gentleman, came out. 
Sidebar note, thank you, American, uh, South African censorship. I saw it here without all the sex scenes. So I get to America, say, you've got to see this movie. I see it in America, and I'm like, oh, great, you know, just full-on sex scenes. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I never say that again. But, but there was something in that of, of, of a drill sergeant taking this raw Greek food from a broken family, angry, resentful, bitter, and how he takes him, and he basically beats him down. And one of the most poignant moments in the movie is when Gear is doing push-ups in the rain and the drill sergeant is standing over him with a hose pipe, just trying to get him to give up. And Richard Gear weeps. And he says, what you don't understand is I have nowhere to go. I've only ever wanted to be a pilot. I've only ever wanted to fly. And so when God said, build a boot camp or a basics, I knew exactly what it meant. I'd just come out of Oatswurn. I'd just come out of the infantry school. And God said, I will send people to you if you will train them and recognize, raise them up, and release them, then I will keep sending. The moment you keep them for yourself, I will dry up that wellspring. I will stop sending men and women to you. And it changed the way I thought of church. It was no longer a gathering on Sunday. It was an incubation of leadership growth and development. What mattered most is your growth and your development. And then, every five years, we wanted to empty the church. Listen, I don't know how some of you have been around forever, are still around. I mean, I'm just being truthful. I could not sit for 40 years listening to lectures. At some point in time, I've got to be activated. At some point in time, I've got to do what's doable. Are you with me? Now, well done, those of you who stayed a long time, because Meryl's going to correct me. Um, but, but do you hear what I'm saying? And so this notion of every five years, we want to empty the church. So people say, oh, you can't believe these people have left my church. I'm saying, you can't believe these people have left my church. Because it wasn't how long you stayed. It was your ability to be trained by God for a divine assignment. And that divine assignment, like Doug and Sheena, could be here forever, or it could be like so many others, to be scattered onto a global stage. Ladies and gentlemen, my love, I'm going to hand over to you now, so you can jump into anything you want to. Talk about the kids. Um, I want you to understand, what was I going to say now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is, it's helping you find the call of God on your life. What is that essence of being? We might call it meaning. We might call it purpose. It's that indicator that the Spirit of God has put you on this planet for a reason. And it's got to be in five words. If it's in a paragraph, you have no idea why you're here. Meryl's job, to bind up the brokenhearted. She's a therapist. Does that surprise you? But she became a therapist at 54. But up until that point in time, the clear call of God from when I met her as a teenager was bind up the broken heart. Dana, set at liberty those who are captive. It happened to be in that passage of Scripture. I was standing in the House of Blues in West L.A. Dana was performing. And the place was loud and it was smoky and, and, and whatever. And a woman, a little shickered up, she definitely had a few scotches, kind of walks in and I'm standing at the door and she says, who's this? And I said, it's Dana. And she said, what is it about her? When I hear her music, I feel so free on the inside. Because even in this club in West L.A., the anointing is still evident. You with me? And so the, the dream of this story, added to the dream of the story, was to ensure that every man, woman, and child is able to understand, not career. Careers come and go. 
I was a student, I was a soldier, I was a school teacher, I'm a church planter, I'm a church replanter. The, 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 the career pieces come and go. What doesn't come and go is the essence of being. It's why you are here. And our job is to call out that essence of being so that you can be profoundly effective in kingdom advancement. My babe. <laughs> what, did you, what did you love? Let me interview you. No. Yes. So, Meryl, how did you guys manage the tension between stewarding what God's given you in the moment with trying to pursue your dreams of what God's called you to? To any word of advice, like if you're sitting here with a desire to go, but you've got no, way, no idea where to start, um, could you speak into that? Like the transition, how do we, how do we manage the now... How do we manage the now in light of the future? There's a, yeah, great question. There's a saying, I'm trying to think where we heard it from, love, but it's, what's that, who did we hear it from? It's called Urgent Patience. And I, I we, we, at our last oh yes, from Brad at our last kind of leadership get together. He spoke about urgent patience. And he gave a beautiful description about a house that was burning down. He had called the firemen. The firemen arrived, and they seemed to go really slow. And they were unlocking the valves and checking this and do. And the house is burning. And he's like, the house is burning down. And they're just checking the valves. Doing, and he was like flummoxed by why they didn't just pull out the thing and, you know, hose the house down. And this, the, the, the man basically said to them, we don't want to have to do anything twice. We don't want to have to backtrack. And in that moment, Brad said he looked and he realized that it, was, it was urgent patience. They were doing the right things with an urgency inside, but a patience in the process. And, and I, you know, that question, I mean, I don't know if I can give a great answer, but life is full of tensions. You know, it just is. And we promise troubles in this world. That's it. Mark. Jesus promises us troubles in this world. So life is not just the straight shot, you know, that you get to shoot and you hit, you hit the target. It's often this meander. And the one thing that I remember when I, when I accepted Jesus at 15, one of the scriptures that really gripped me was Philippians 3, where it says, that I would take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. And I never forget thinking, oh, my word, God took hold of me for a purpose. And the purpose is pretty simple, but it's manifested itself in many different stages and roles that I've, I've had to play, you know, across my life. So to me, the purpose, if I have to... Oil, what I feel my calling is down to this very um, concentrated reduction, it would be I'm called to encourage or be an encourager or as Chris has just said, bind up the brokenhearted. But it's manifested itself along the journey in many meanders and up and downs, but the essence of that call has kind of stayed the same. Um, You know, one, one other thing I would say is 
don't lose the wonder of your salvation. You know, we sang tonight, and I just um, thought about, I wonder if we really realize what Jesus captured for each and every one of us when he, when he took death and he swallowed it up. And he said, now you, I can offer all of you eternal life. What a hope that this is not it, that there is this incredible future of an eternal hope and destination. Why was I going there? Oh, and, you know, I think we get, we get um, sort of into dead ends when we lose the wonder of our salvation. We lose the wonder of what it is that Jesus has saved me for. Um, if we don't continually focus on that, the wonder just seeps out of us, and we kind of become, we lack salt. And, you know, I just want to say, find yourself, like, so I love that song. Gosh, I was so shocked when she sang it, but find yourself at his table. Find yourself in his presence. Find yourself on your knees, worshiping in your, in your bedroom. Don't lose the wonder. The wonder of your salvation is meant to be an intimate knowing of the Most High God who knows you and you know him. So I don't know if I answered that, Chris. Is yeah, you know, I think um, we are such integrated whole people. We are. We are. We are. We are such beautifully integrated people. And so God will let some areas of our life push the pause so that the other areas of our life can grow up. You know what Paul writes to Timothy? This is what he says, and I'm going to summarize chapters 1 through to the end. He said, number one, grow in your calling, the understanding of your anointing. Spend time in that space. If you are very clear on your calling and your anointing, guess what? God's going to put that on hold, and it's going to drive you nuts. Why doesn't Stan recognize me? Why don't I get opportunities to lead worship? Why every time I go to the mic do they say, not now. We'll be going into the Word. Well, God's on about something because you've got a big muscle group called your calling, but a poor muscle group, and I'll get to the others in a moment. Are you with me? And so preparation is always God developing all of our muscle groups. Being on the other side of the world in a nation I did not want to live in, in a city that I hated for the first eight years, guess what? I needed God, my muscle groups to be developed by God with enormous pain and frustration. The second chapter is about devotion. It's all of the great passages about prayer and, and a life of intimacy with God. Again, yeah, you have a beautiful community that we can grow in and we can blossom in. Guess what happens when you're on your own out there? No one's going to lift up your arms. All these people's lives carry on, and you are on your own out there. So God says, well, I've got to get you ready for that. You need to develop the most beautiful life of devotion in the text, in the word, in worship. Building yourself up, he says, in the most holy faith. Thirdly, character. We're all character flawed. The only problem is God doesn't let our excuses, you know, it's my family of origin. So my old man was an alky, so I wrote off many of my weaknesses. Well, if I didn't grow up in the home of an alcoholic, then none of this would have happened. God says, oh, that's interesting. Okay, we'll just wait. I had a temper, violent temper. I throw things around and punch holes in doors. Oh, Meryl, you know, I grew up in the, in the home of an alcoholic, see. And God says, really? Is, is that 
really the reason? Or are you just an indisciplined human being that needs your, my holiness to break into your life? And so here's this third chapter full of character where God says, I want to grow you and develop you as a human being. Otherwise, we become this calling, anointing thing without any sense of our humanity. And the leader you want to follow is a leader who limps. He's very self-aware of their weaknesses and struggles and limitations and humilities. Chapter 4 is all about doctrine and uh, how we grow in our theology. We had that conversation today. We've got to know what we believe, you know. Emotions will go crazy when you're on a foreign shore in another city and you don't have the benefit of corporate worship and someone preaching the word. And so there's this deep sense of the practice of theology that resides inside of me. God is providential. I know that academically, but I want to live it out authentically. Then community. I don't know about you, but I need community. Honestly, it would be so easy. I've walked to the Lord for 45 years. I could easily say, no, I don't need. I, Meryl and I, we community. I listen to the deconstructionists. I just am astounded by their thinking. But actually, there's this beautiful text about older brothers and older sisters and older men and younger men and widows and the poor. There's this beautiful picture of I am most human. I am most spiritually alive. I'm most ready for my God assignment when I am incubated in community. And then he brings us in the final chapters to that beautiful charge where he says, but you, man of God, woman of God, flee from all of this, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness, Fight the good fight of faith. Speaking about the nations is not just a romantic dream. It's raw guts. I remember climbing onto the uh, 57 freeway from uh, Diamond Bar on my way down to Costa Mesa. And as clearly as I've ever heard the devil, he sat on my shoulder and he said, you know this country does not want you. I get home later that afternoon and my kids say, Dad, you know, kids at school said to us, what are we doing here? Because we send missionaries to Africa. Africa doesn't send missionaries to us. Now, for the first time in my life, my kids are experiencing war. It's fine when I'm, as he's sitting on my shoulders and I'm having to fight him. So Paul says, by way of charge, fight the good fight. And part of the benefit of this training, this boot camp, is to learn how to fight well. Well done, Stan, for keeping the prayer meeting going. We started that, I, I don't know, 38 years ago or something. But to still come on Thursdays, many, Nick and Kati, many of us were incubated. It was horrible. It was dry. It used to be at the DLI Hall. Our kids would come home exhausted, hyped, dirty, you know, hungry, tired. And, and we said, oh, is this worth it? You know what, Meryl, why don't you stay at home with the kids and I'll go and pray? What BS. It's what we do as a family. It's how we wrestle with the things at hand, and our kids see us praying. I don't want my kids seeing me watch Netflix only. I want them to see Dad crying out to God, Mom and Dad saying, we don't know what to do. We don't know how to handle this moment. Come on, kids, come and pray with us. Short nudge, nudge, kick someone in the shin, pull their hair. But they're growing up with this incredible space. This is what we do in the house of the Lord. We pray together. Those guidelines as an essence of being is what God will percolate if we let Him. Many in a more charismatic tradition make so much of giftings and callings, way too much. 
And we undervalue these other pieces. Anyway, I could say much more about it. I hope those two answers are helpful. I was saying to Chris and Meryl the other day, we had a coffee with them, and I said, I was, kind of, I was trying to pull together the moment that we're in now as a church, 38 years old or so, 39 years old. And I was kind of just recounting some of our history, and I said, you know, Dudley and, Dudley and Anne gave us generations, and they gave us, what else did I say? Government, church government was coming out of denominations, and and they fought to come out of buildings and into, onto the streets. And Dudley gave us, and he, and he spoke always about generations, about generations, generations. Not about your generation. It's the second, third, and fourth generation that they're going to count. Chris and Merrill, for me, if I had to put them in just one word, and they're more than this, it's go. Get up and go. Don't stop going. Go. You can go. If you're not going, go. If you're not standing up, get up and go. If you, whatever, just go. Just get up and, and get out there and go. And if I think of Rory and Mel and their tenure, it was about generosity and gathering. Rory had an incredible ability to gather people and to pull people into a story and into a, into a place. And there was an incredible generosity. With Ryan and Mel, it was about gifting. Gifting was, the, was this release of gifting. And Ryan and Mel were incredible gifts to us. And um, so there's couple of G's, you know, it's a good preacher, it's like you just pull some G's together. Very good. But very good. 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 Exactly. But you know, Chris, I want to ask you this question while we've got you here. Why plant? Why go? What's what's this planting thing all about? Because I do think there's another wave of planting from from the city, from this church, and from the churches in the city, which has been such a rich seedbed of planters over the years. You know, all of us have altars of remembrance, which means it's a, it's a high point where we met with God in a unique way. The problem is we forget them. And so part of the homework I'd like you to take is to sit with a journal tonight or tomorrow morning and write down those altars of remembrance, because somewhere on the line we're going to go back and remind ourselves of that. I spoke of two of mine this morning, and uh, you've got your own. And one of the altars of remembrance was 1990 October in Hong Kong. As you know, Glenridge had many people in the surfing industry, surfers, judges, the clothing, whatever the case may be. And that was our first trip to Asia. And so they said to us, there is this beautiful local uh, Cantonese woman called Anita Singh. I'll never forget her name. And um, she, uh, she'd love to connect with you. So we were, I mean, our first, we arrived in Hong Kong, I mean, wide-eyed, like the six million people then, not now. And uh, just buzzing and hierarchies and, ju- I mean, um, skyscrapers, just amazing. And so Anita comes and picks us up. Now, we were driving a janky vehicle. We were as poor as church mice. And Anita pulls up with her 7 Series black BMW with her American boyfriend and picks us up outside of the hotel. They said, come, we're taking you to the part of the island where no one goes to. And no, no Caucasians, no Goy go to. So we, we're driving across. Meryl sitting at the back with her. And Anita says to Meryl, what does your husband do? And she says, I try to answer Anita in kind of unreligious language. You know, I thought, well, I don't want to, you know, I'll just be kind of unreligious. And I tried to explain to her, and she had absolutely no clue what I was talking about. Eventually, I said, you know, she, he's a minister. 
And he, she said, oh, does he work for the government? And I mean, it doesn't matter what I said. So I said a church. She had no context for church. And eventually, in sort of, you know, exasperation, I said, Anita, have you ever heard of Jesus? And she thought for a minute, and then she looked at me and she said, no, I don't think he lives around here. <laughs> and, and she had never, ever heard the name of Jesus. It was the first person I'd ever met, you know, educated, wealthy, you name it, but she had never heard the name of Jesus. And so God softened our hearts. He said, you'll spend the rest of your days abroad. That's it. That's it. We didn't know where. We didn't know when. We didn't know to. We knew nothing. And that stand was a pivotal moment for me when I realized of the seven point something billion people on the planet, two point something billion have never, ever, ever, ever heard the name of Jesus. All the stuns, you know, that kind of armpit of Europe going into the Middle East, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, um, Afghanistan, even down into Pakistan, there are over 400 million people. That's more than the population of the United States. The total number of Christians there, and I didn't read that in a book, I read that in a credible, I mean, a credible couple who have given their lives to this region and have said they will die on the Silk Road, which is that, that area. On any given Sunday morning in a megachurch, there are more people in church than in all of those stuns. Over 400 million people, there are less than 2,000 Christians. That's, a megachurch has more than that on any given Sunday. Where can we, with any sense of biblical authenticity, validate that? When Jesus so clearly said, Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the outermost parts of the world. And so, Stan, that was seeded in us. The theology grew. The biblical understanding grew. But it was an encounter with a woman who'd never heard the name of Jesus. I weep about Europe, where Jesus has been neglected, ignored, and forgotten. That churches, buildings, and I'm not fussed about them. I actually think we do better outside of buildings, historically. But... Um, but, but our, our mosques, our apartments, our skateboards, uh, skate, skating, I mean, well, you'd know with all the architectural things that they're doing with buildings. It's a tragedy. So that seeded me both with the theology, but then the experience of church planting. Now, can I add this? And my answer can be super long-winded, which I don't want to give you. Change your methodology when you hear the word church plant. For most of us, church planting equals get a school hall, get a band, raise up X amount of money, and let's get going. Well, how many of you know that is the rarest form of church planting around the world? You know what is the number one global church planting method? It's called the dining room table. And it started in Acts chapter 2. They met together every day to eat together. It said the apostles' teaching mentioned once, it mentioned three times they sat around the table and they ate. The most powerful form of church planting methodology is your dining room table. That's where your unbeliever will come. That's where the millennials will come. We will see them and we will hear them because we will listen to them. This is not a form that millennials and Gen Zs jump up and down about. Say, what? We invited the young people to come eat at our table. Within months, we had 40 young people around our table. Meryl and the crew of us cooked our booties off. But there's a beautiful community today. 
not because elegance. It's so wonderful. You know, he said people, when they kind of get introduced, so, so why, did you, why do you love Genesis? Like preaching? No. W- worship? No. It's because we are seen and heard around the dining room table. People have given up on church, deconstructed their faith and their ecclesiology. But the table empowered them because they had a pulpit. This is the millennials' pulpit, the dining room table. I'm not saying don't do school halls. I'm saying when we adjust our thinking, we're busy planting Jack and Denise Maidu into Rotterdam in Holland. Holland, yeah. They heard me speak like this when they were working for Cisco in Dubai. Came to me afterwards and said, you've ruined us. I'm corporate. I love being corporate. I want to do corporate. And I never want to plant a church. But the only thing that you messed with our brains is we love having people around our table. So he took a transfer for no more money to Amsterdam at the headquarters of Cisco so that they could gather people around their dining room table and do what they love to do is to cook curry and hang out with people who don't know Jesus. Ladies and gentlemen, that is global church planting. It's slow. It's relational. It's full of obstacles and uncertainties. It's not based around how good you can preach. It's based on how well you can love. And suddenly it changes the kind of church planter we're looking for. We're not looking for Mr. and Mrs. Charismatic. Whoa! We're looking for someone who will clean their house early, have people around for dinner, clean their house late, follow them up. How are you doing? Can I pray for you? And that hard German who thinks the church was the author of Adolf Hitler, is suddenly, why are you doing this? Why are you having us for dinner? It's because you're a beautiful person, and it's our honor to have you in our home. So not only is the heart captivated by the urgency of the text, but it's our methodology that invites all of us to step into a church planting narrative. Are you with me? I am so compelled by little communities of love and light around the world. So many prophetic things. See this dark continent and then these little lights. And we say, well, it must be glory. must have big meetings, lots of meetings, hours of meetings, and the glory will come and Africa will be reached. I don't personally think so. I think it will be when people like you and me open up our hearts and homes and invite the broken, the bruised, the untrusting, and the vulnerable invite them in. There's a woman called Rosario Butterfield. Have any of you heard her? Okay. Rosario was a lesbian in a lesbian relationship. She was a professor at Syracuse University on literature and theology or something. And she was writing a book about the church, the right-wing evangelical movement in America. And she thought out of integrity she better interview some real Christians. And she met a pastor and his wife from the Presbyterian Church. And they said, we would love you to interview us, but can you do a favor? Now, she hates evangelicals. Would you mind coming to have dinner with us? So she went for dinner the first night. They said, you know what, we didn't finish. Would you come next Thursday and next Thursday and next Thursday and next Thursday? Over a year of Thursday meals together, she bowed her knee towards Jesus, still a lesbian, still with same-sex attractions, but she discovered her Savior. And that was the beginning of her journey. And she's written a book called The Gospel Comes with a Front Door Key, I think. It's a beautiful green book. Please read it. 
Because the whole idea is how we can reach those who are far away from God by the power of our dining room tables. If I say church planting and your mind, the, the kind of um, photo that jumps into your mind, the school hall and a band and everyone's saying, how long, how many people did you, how many people did you have Sunday, how much money did you have, forgive me for being nauseous. We have to change that narrative and that line of questions to say, who are you loving? Who is coming back for a second time, a third time? Meals you're cooking. Are you with me, folks? So, my love? Yeah, someone this morning had a word about the fatherlessness in South Africa. And it, it feels similar to America. I mean, there's so many broken families. And so, what we found was um, these young people that, that we've gathered, they, they're broken and they want family. They, they want to sit around a table and they want to be seen and they want to be heard. And I can only imagine it's very similar here. And before you go and try and church plant out there, do it in your home. Invite people around your table. Bring in the, the broken, the lost, the hurting, the fatherless, and have a meal with them and listen to them. Hear their story. Um, yeah, I just want to say it has been such a rich journey to lis listen to these young people's stories and validate their journey, validate their pain, um, weep with them, and see how the trust that is built Take kind of, time. it takes time, but it br brings confidence. We have seen the most beautiful sort of transformations in people who broken, you know, parents that died as addicts, and Sam, the girl that, you know, I hope you meet one day, she literally greets everyone in our church. She, she's on staff with us now. She's just this incredible girl. If you met Sam, you would not believe her story. You meet her and you think, no, it couldn't be. And, um, yeah, I just want to say to all of you, you have dining room tables. You can invite, even if you don't have a dining room table, you can invite them to sit on your couch and listen to their stories. Sam was homeless from 12 to 17. Beautiful beautiful girl. The father was a heroin addict. Her mother was an alcoholic. Harvard graduate who worked at the White House and died an alcoholic. Beautiful girl. Sorry, yes, her mom, yeah. Sam came to us and uh, they said to me, when you meet Sam, you'll fall in love with her. And I heard Sam before I saw her and she was Big, loud, but very broken eyes. She could not hug me because men can't be trusted. And I was okay with that. It took a long time. We had a staff meeting the other day, and uh, I had taught at Malibu, which is our gathering of church leaders. And I'd said this, oftentimes the leadership team that brings you here is not the leadership team that will take us there. And she just sat there, she started weeping, and she said, Chris, were you talking about me? Is my time done? And she just wept. God has broken her heart from this hard, addict, life on the streets, survivalism, to intimacy. One of our forerunners, she pastors more people in our church than anyone else, without exception.
So invite people into your world. There will be some more strategic conversations, of sure. But if you change your thinking from school hall, worship team, and long meetings and into an invitation into your world and life, let's do life together. Watch and see what God will do. As Meryl said, the gospel would be proclaimed in all nations. Then the end will come. I hear people say, oh, Jesus is coming back. And I've heard that so many times in 45 years. But, but he isn't. He isn't. Please, don't listen to those prophecies. They're liars. Because only when everyone's heard the gospel, then Jesus will come back. There's work to be done. You may go as a businessman or woman to Europe you may go as a school teacher to the stuns. You may go as a doctor or a nurse to Cambodia, Thailand, Nepal. It does not matter how you go, but that you open your heart to go and watch and see what God will do with you. He is so invested in the beauty of the gospel and the mystery and the wonder of His Son that He will rain His blessing on you when you say yes. What I would like us to do is it just feels like it's been such a pivotal week. It's been such a, I mean, you speak about this pivoting. And um, I'd love you to pray for us, but I'd love Hardy's to pray for us. Rob, to pray for us. Friends in the city and, uh, and more than friends, family. But just to, I don't know, just to pray for... There's a, there's, a, there's, a new, there's a new 40 years ahead of us. It's, nearly, it's, it's a generation that's really, is nearly done. Yeah. I just thought about that now. Actually, there's, a, there's a generation that's nearly done, and there's another generation that's being birthed. And I'd love you to just, just pray for us as a church and for us to receive that and to agree with that and to take hold of that and to move on. So can we do that? Hardys, please. Nick and Cuts, please. And Rob as well. If you can as well, just, uh, just pray for Glenridge Church. For those that are not from Glenridge Church, I apologize, but, um, but we need this. We need family and friends. Holly, do you want to start? It's incredible pedigree in this church. Uh, I went to Durban High School from Johannesburg, and I didn't realize what a good school I was going to. They would bless me. Many people said, what school do you go to? And I said, DHS. And I didn't realize why people said, gee, you're a special kid, you know? In this church, we joined this church. There's a pedigree here. There's a, there's a something here that's, that's for you. We, we come from this church, and, and we got something here. And God has done amazing things with us through Chris and Merrill, through this mystery. And I want to I agree with you, Stan. I think, I think the next 40 years are going to bust open for you. And, and um, I want to encourage you to... Uh, I was very proud of coming from this church. Amen. Hello, everybody. And uh, we got married in this church, Katina. Matthew, my son, he's here. He was dedicated in the DLI Hall. Josie was born here. We, we were sent from here. And I tell you, you don't want to, this is the finest church to be sent from. And we've got some red pointers here that, that, that came tonight. And uh, isn't that wonderful? So... Um, can I ask you to stand because, because I think beyond a prayer there will be a commission even tonight and so Lord I, I thank you even as Stan has asked the Hardys to pray we, 
we're one of the many sons and daughters that came here, were, were prepped up, were straightened out like an arrow, and, and then we were shot out. I'm, I'm sorry we only went to Pansan, but it's been unbelievably wonderful, and you've been so kind to us because you blessed us. Like you blessed us when I went to Durban High School, and you blessed us, Lord, when we came to this church, but then you, then you sent us out to be a blessing, Lord, and I thank you, Lord, for that, and I want to agree with Stan. Um, in fact, before I agree with Stan, I want to thank you for Kristen Merrill. I want to thank you for this amazing gift that this couple are, this, this Afrikaans man together with an English rose, can I call her, um, with even Ken and Laura, I think, there somewhere, but you, you put together an unlikely couple, and you did amazing work, and then you sent many of us out, including the Ashley Bowles, and we could go on, and the Nigels and the Terrys. And I want to thank you for this couple. But I want to agree with Stan now, Lord, and say, indeed, it's kind of 40 years, and there's going to be a new door open. And we declare and we say, thank you, Lord, for something of a new door, something of a surge, something of, we think of a, of a womb that's packed up, and then suddenly it bursts forth with new life, God. And I thank you, Lord, that Stan has asked the question, why go, why plant? And Lord, it's, it's you. It's not us trying to be clever. It's you. So won't you bless this house? By sending, by we, we truly uh, are blessed when we become a blessing. So, would you re bless her? Would you re seed her? Would you re send her, Lord, in the name of Jesus? And I want to pray for, for Stan and Heather and the elders of this amazing church. Glenridge Church International is known actually throughout the world. And I pray, Lord, that, that she would once again, Lord, gird up her loins. She would once again lift her hands. The sails of God would be lifted up and the winds of God would blow that beautiful. 13 knot, can I say 20 knot wind, maybe 32 strong, but 20 knot wind that'll blow the ships to, to yonder shores, to yonder neighborhoods, Lord. And so bless this house in the name of Jesus. She is a beautiful church, and we ask you to bless her and to cause her to, to live, Lord, to cause her to celebrate. And maybe, Lord, I can say that I see flags. Maybe it's an old thing. I don't know what it is, Lord, but, but the flags of the nation's blowing and waving briskly in the hearts of this church. This is a prayer from Nick and Cutty for this church. Would you hear us, Lord, and would you bless her in a new season, I ask. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for such a beautiful story, Lord. That is generational. Thank you, Lord, that um, there's been a generation of Moseses who have spoken a word, let my people go, and facilitated a journey out of Egypt, and established a priesthood to carry the ark of God along and throughout the desert. But thank you for a generation of Davids and that are building a new tent, and I think Chris said something very significant about finding a new framework, finding a new architecture, and the God that there's a, there's a calling inside of this season upon this church to rise up and to lift up their eyes to look to the Lord for a new architecture. That even though, even as David, Lord, began to build right within the context of the law of Moses and found this tent of David that became a, a model that broke out in, in the book of Acts chapter 15, that became, Lord, right the framework for reaching out to the Gentiles. And so, yes, I thank you for the flags and I thank you for the nations. And I thank you, God, that there is a new access and that there is a new door. New access and new door. 
and that God, you are adding doors to this church. And there, yes, there's been strengths, God, and areas of strength upon this community of, of Glenridge, but there are new doors. There are new areas, and, and yes, we thank you for the dinners and the dinner tables. We thank you for, I think, a new priesthood to reach out to people, to evangelize, a new evangelism that is really going to thrive in people's homes and in people's um, um, uh, uh, dining, dining rooms. Lord, I thank you that there was a story about believing in the God who, who believes in those who don't believe in themselves. And that, oh God, I see a new group of evangelists who will open up their homes and will know God to thrive just by telling their story. They are not necessarily people who are speaking from the pulpit, God, but yes, from the platform of their own dining tables. Yet, God, new massive doorways through the homes into the community of Glenridge Church. But God, Father, a tent of David that shall, oh God, give new access, oh God, to the nations. Not only that the nations will come in, but yes, there will be a thriving um, in the area of sending out. And God, that's the core anointing of this church. And so we, 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 we want to pray for the sending. We want to pray that the spirit to send will, oh God, rest upon this church. That the spirit of Antioch that, that, that sets the Pauls and the Barnabases onto, a, oh God, a, 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 an adventure, an apostolic adventure to Go, God, from city to city, from nation to nation to touch people in the name of the Lord Jesus. So we bless you, Lord, for Stan and for Heather, in Jesus' name, for who they are. And for, I think the word pivot, very pivotal leadership, the ability to transition, the ability to manage. Oh, God, we thank you that, God, they are an administrative people, people who pay attention to detail. And so, God, we thank you that they will be able to carry inside of their own hearts this, this transitioning. And this discovery of a new framework, of a new design of God for this church, oh God, that will create a new context, oh God, that will honor what they come from, but God embrace what they're walking into. And so, God, we thank you that the kingdom of God is like, a, oh God, uh, pulling all the new treasures into one space. And we thank you that they will be able to hold that inside of their own hearts with a sense of honor in the name of Jesus Christ and release this church, oh God, into a new dispensation of God. We bless you, Father. In the name of Jesus, hallelujah. Bless your name. I'd love to pray for this church, Lord. Um, just want to thank you for the 40 years or the 39 years, God. So many stories, um, so much of a God life here, God. So many people sent out and your work, Lord, that is at been absolutely beautiful. I want to thank you for our history, God. I want to thank you for our faith that was shaped here and found expression here. And um, as Nick has prayed for Chris and Merrill, thank you for calling them out and, and um, putting courage in them and forming a story around yes. them. And, yes. and then going on to Rory and Mel and to Ryan and Mel and now to Stan and Heather, God. So exciting to hear Stan say, "What? there's another 40 years, Lord. And yes, you, Lord. I just I want to thank you for my story, and, and I'm sure I could speak on behalf of many others, of, just to say, never, ever, ever in my wildest dreams would I have dreamt of what you would have done with just an ordinary life, Lord. 
And I want to thank you. I want to thank you that it was birthed here. In this place, Lord. Thank you. And Father, uh, we pray that many, many would be able to continue to say that, Lord. Many have already, but just that you have done exceedingly, abundantly, more than we could have ever asked or imagined, Lord. So thank you. Thank you that um, we live lives of meaning. We live lives of purpose. And that every person that belongs to Red Point Church would lay hold of that. Uh, sorry, of Glenridge would lay hold. Don't listen to it. Sorry. Glenridge, this beautiful church, Lord. In Jesus' name, would lay hold of everything that you've laid hold of them for. Amen. Father, I, I thank you tonight, Lord, that um, this church and every church is an incredible sovereign work of your Holy Spirit. Yes, I want to thank you, God, that this was never birthed as our idea. It, it was really birthed in you putting your hand upon a group of people to say, will you, be, will you obey? Will you obey? And God, I want to thank you again tonight that you are calling every single person in this room to say yes to you. I, I want to pray that right now, by your Holy Spirit, every hand that is holding on tight to things that are precious to them, I want to pray, God, that you would open up hands. I want to pray that this would be a church, a people, a family who have the posture before you of God, we only have what you give and we only want what you put into our hands. And that, Father, this would be an incredible um, birthing of a new story of obedience, of putting their faith and trust in a good God, a scary ride maybe, but a good God who will see them through to finish that race. And I want to thank you, Lord Jesus, that for such a time as this, you have raised up Stan and Heather. You have called them to lead this beautiful bride. You have called this eldership team alongside them, a beautiful, unique, colorful, fragrant team alongside them to do what only you, sovereign God, can do in and through them. And I really ask, God, that you'd speak, that they would hear, that they would obey, that every person in this church would be activated in, like Cutty said, laying hold of that which, for which you have laid hold of them, that there'd be an activation of faith in a good God who can use any, <laughs> any much afraid, yes. any big, bold, courageous. You can use anyone in this room to do your bidding and mighty acts for the kingdom of God. All right, it's been a wonderful evening. Stan's going to wrap it up in a moment, but I want to conduct a quick spontaneous liturgy. And whenever we do something like this, it could go really bad or it could go really good. You with me? This is how we're going to roll. You know, liturgies are all about statement and response. So I'm going to make a statement, and your response will be, I surrender, I surrender. But listen to what I say because God's going to hear what you say. <laughs> so don't just do it kind of in bland, boring repetition. Just listen and respond. 
closely, but I want us to open our eyes and open our hands. We, we, we're almost done. You've been incredibly kind. I know it's been a long day, and I so, so appreciate it. I'll make a statement. We all respond together. I surrender. I surrender. We open our hands to you tonight, O oh God. I surrender. I surrender. We bring to you the things that we hold dear. I surrender. I surrender. We bring to you our dreams and our aspirations. I surrender. I surrender. We give to you our weaknesses and our brokenness. I surrender. I surrender. We bring to you the sense of adventure or fear inside of us. I surrender. I surrender. We bring to you our concern about finances and how will all of this work. I surrender. I surrender. I surrender my anxieties and my reluctances. I surrender. I surrender. We bring to you our career paths and the future we've crafted out for ourselves. I surrender and I surrender. And tonight we uphold your calling, your will, your purpose. I surrender. I surrender. Thank you, Father, for this incredible group of men and women. Thank you for what they have. Thank you, Nick. You've surrendered a lot. Um, thank you, O oh God, for the incredible seed in the soil of this big tree. But from this tree, many apples have fallen, and many seeds have gone into many spaces and places to let your kingdom advance, your gospel be proclaimed, and communities of love and light established around the world. But the job is not yet done. The future is still being written. The adventure is still being discovered. But may all of us, at least in the orb of this room tonight, echo even as we go to bed tonight, I surrender, I surrender. In Jesus' wonderful name, amen. Amen. Wonderful. Let's just give these guys a massive just thank you. Thank you, thank you. Thank you for what you've done. Thank you for what you're doing. And whenever you are in town, this pulpit is open. Honestly, you don't have to ask. Just, you always do. You always do. Stan, we're in town. I want to tell you, we always want you. We always need your voice. We always want your voice. We appreciate you and we thank you. Sorry it's been a long night, guys. But sometimes we've got to linger because God's doing something. And uh, let's, uh, let's enjoy. So the idea of burgers... And coffee is not that's because what we do at church at the end. It's like that's what we do. No, the reason why we have burgers and coffee is we want to connect around the table, guys. It's part of the value system of who we are, what we want to be, and what we want to multiply out there. So bless you, Father. Bless these men and women. Bless their homes. Bless their workplaces. Bless their children. Bless their employers. Bless their employees. Father, bless their weeks as they go ahead. They're coming and they're going. Let there be financial favor and prosperity over every person. Let your protection and hand be over every family. In Jesus' name. Amen. Bless you. Thank you. Thank you.